Let's read today's scripture. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every, every opportunity, including vacuuming, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right, we're going to be jumping back into Ephesians today. As we are in uh, Passover Sunday, or not Passover, sorry, what is it? <laughs> wow. Uh, we are in uh, the Sunday before Easter today as we're looking at uh, Palm Sunday today and, and moving towards the time of Easter. And today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 looking at what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is a phrase of be filled with the Holy Spirit that we hear in Scripture. And when you hear that, hear that phrase, be filled with the Spirit, what kind of images immediately come to your mind, especially if you've been in the church for a while? Some of you, maybe it brings some confusion and some fear of, oh no, what are they, what are they saying? It, it, maybe it brings to mind Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 of the tongues of fire on people's heads, or maybe some type of power encounter of healing or speaking in tongues or, or of, of preaching the gospel in some kind of charismatic-like experience. Whatever it is, we have our own ideas of what this means, and so today we want to look at what is Paul actually saying when he says this to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5. But first, the context. We've been in Ephesians for a while, and for those, again, just joining us, we've, uh, when we started back, we did the first three chapters of Ephesians, which is all about what Christ has done for us, who we are now that we are in Christ. We are this new creation because he's adopted us, he has saved us, he has showered us with his grace, and, and now he has done all of these things for us, not because of anything we did, but because of who he is and how much he loves us, that he has brought us into his family and saved us from death to life. And then he goes on to say in the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, that now that we are in Christ, how should we then live? What should life now look like now that we are in Christ? And what does it mean now to be a new creation? And in what ways should, should this now change the way in which we engage with the world and how we love like he loved us and sacrificially loving one another? And the immediate context for this passage today was what we looked at two weeks ago where he was telling them to walk in the light as Jesus is also in the light and to stay out of darkness, but instead walk in the light. And he gets here in verse 15, let's sit the first 15 to 16, he says this, be careful or pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So he starts off by telling the Ephesians, the last one is, if you want to walk in the light, here's what you need to do. What should you do? Pay careful attention to how you walk. So he says, and already to the Ephesians, this is the fourth time that he has told them, or fifth time now, he's told them how to walk, that they must now walk differently as a result of being in Christ. So he's got a few examples of that. Back in 4.1, he says, walk worthy of your calling, is what he told them back in 4.1. In 4.17, he said, don't walk like the Gentiles do. In 5.2, he said, walk in love. In 5.8, he said, walk in the light. And now in 5.15, he's saying, walk wisely. All this is in the second half of this book, saying this should lead to a changed life. This is how you are supposed to walk. This new life in Christ actually looks different. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus, to have a change of mind, but we actually must have a change in how we live and how we love. 
We must live like he lived, to walk like Jesus walked. And so again, in verse 15, he says, Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So we must pay careful attention to each step, he's saying, and walk in wisdom. Why? Because these are evil days. Now, I find it interesting here that he says to walk in wisdom. Because when we think about wisdom today, what does the idea of wisdom conjure up? Is it idea of actions or is it knowledge? And for most of us, think of wisdom as things you understand. You want to gain wisdom, you read more books, so you learn more. It's about learning and what we know with our minds. But here, wisdom is entirely has to do with how we actually live, with how we walk. Walk in wisdom. And so for most of us, it can stay in the head, and, and yet Paul is speaking of how they live. And one of my favorite passages addressing wisdom is actually the only place in the Old Testament where it says to be filled with the Spirit. And check this out in Exodus chapter 31. This is when they're building the temple, and God says this. He says, the Lord also spoke to Moses, and he says, look, I have appointed by name Bezalel. I have filled him with God's Spirit, with wisdom. Again, the only time anywhere in the Old Testament it uses that phrase, to be filled with God's Spirit, outside of one tiny reference to Mike about justice and power, which is a different context. I have filled him with God's Spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze to cut gemstones for mounting and to carve wood for, wood for work in every craft. I have put wisdom in the heart of every skilled artisan in order to make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on top of it, and all the other furnishings of the, scent, of, of, sorry, of the tent. So isn't this interesting? The only time the Old Testament speaks of being filled with the Spirit is actually for the sake of art, artwork. It's for the sake of building. It's for the sake of fine woodworking. And specifically, it's filled with the Spirit to give wisdom to empower the gifts that God has already put within them for them to create incredible craft work and incredible design work and to do woodworking and to build this incredible artwork for the temple. In this case, the empowering presence of the Spirit fills them with wisdom to empower them to do these things, to build these things, to do this incredible level of art. And I love that. The Spirit empowering, the Spirit filling them to empower the gifts, the talents, the abilities that are already innately there to then do this incredible thing of using their talents and their gifts for the Lord. That is Spirit-filled wisdom as described in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that's in many ways what Paul's describing here in the New Testament. The Jewish understanding of wisdom is not just being brains on toothpicks or brains on sticks. It is an idea of actually engaging, of doing, of being faithful and walking it out. So the Holy Spirit empowers us to do things by his wisdom to engage, to walk wisely, to change the way we engage in the world. Okay, so back again to verse 15. He says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. You see the context of it here making the most of the time because the days are evil. So Paul says, how you live matters. Be very careful. Use wisdom in how you live. And he says, make the most of the time in verse 16, which literally in the Greek says to buy back the time, right? To redeem it, to make the most use of it. Don't waste of it. Do the things you were created for, the things the Holy Spirit will empower you that glorify God in his kingdom. And why should they do this? He says, because the days are evil. Now, Paul's already said this multiple times in this letter, referring to how evil the days are at that time. Back in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul put it this way. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. 
So Paul is saying that Satan is at work. These are evil times that we are in. And this was 2,000 years ago. That right now, he is at work. He is coming against you. So we must be on guard because the days are evil. Chapter 6, verse 12, we'll get to in a few weeks. And he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So again, Paul is saying, we live in the midst of a dark time. There are evil days that are here. And he's saying, we are in a spiritual battle. So don't waste your time on stupid stuff. Don't be a fool. Don't waste your time. Redeem it. Buy it back. Live in wisdom. Walk wisely. Walk in love. Walk in unity. And he's going to spend the rest of this passage describing what that looks like. And it's just as true for us today. We live in evil days and time where there is so much darkness and oppression and pain in this time. And yet many of us, so many of us, are not walking wisely with our time. And that's why he says again, verse 15, pay careful attention to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Recent studies, I think I quoted before, recent studies have shown, the one most recent I can find is that the average person in America spends two and a half hours a day on social media. Far more if you're under the age of 25. Like, wow, that's a lot. But then on top of that, the average American also spends an hour and a half to six hours a day watching television of some kind on top of that. The older you are, the higher that number goes. So that is a significant portion of our life, especially when you consider we're often working or at school. A massive portion of our life is spent in these activities. Not that those are wrong in of themselves, but is that using wisdom? Is that redeeming and walking wisely and spending so much time on these things that most of that time, if we're honest, does not benefit us or the kingdom in any way? They are simply distractions or numbing or far worse in many cases with social media, destroying our souls and the way we view ourselves and the way we view others and creating fear and, and anxiety and so many other things. That does not sound like we're using wisdom or walking in wisdom. It doesn't sound like we're making the most of our time but it's being wasted. In fact, worse than wasted, it's creating great pain and heartache. I love a great quote from Frodo in Fellowship of the Rings. Gandalf was telling Frodo about the origin of the ring and what happened with the Dark Lord Sauron coming over and talking about how evil the times are and all these things are happening in the land. And Frodo says this. He says, I wish it didn't happen in my time, he says. So do I, says Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. And here it is. He says, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. I love that. That's basically what Paul is saying here. In the midst of evil times, we must decide what do we do with that time. How do we make use of this time? Do we just sit and fret and spend all of our time on social media and telling everyone else why we all must freak out and watching endless videos of how bad it is? Or do we actually engage the world the way that God has told us and walk in wisdom and walk in love and walk in unity and walk in the light? We must buy back this time and not become fools, as he describes, but pursue spirit-empowered wisdom and to allow the spirit to empower us to use the gifts and talents he has given us to bring forth and to build the kingdom in one another. Amen? All right. So then we get to verse 17. And Paul says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So again, don't be fools. Instead, understand the Lord's will. Don't waste your time, he's saying. Instead, walk in the will of God. Now, what does it mean to understand the Lord's will, to walk in the will of the Lord? For many Christians, this is kind of like a mystical thing. 
right? The will of the Lord. What is the will? Especially those that are coming out of college and wondering, Lord, what is your will? Who am I supposed to marry? Who am I supposed to date? Lord, is it this one or this one or this one? Oh, Lord, show me your will of what your will is. Or, or maybe for college students, it's, oh, Lord, is it to go to GCU or to go to Wazoo? Is it to go to community college or go get a job or a trade? Lord, show me your will. And we can passionately seek him for that. Or, Lord, should I take this job or, or this job? And we, we seek after him. Oh, Lord, I need to know your will. I don't want to step out of your will. Tell me what your will is or should i eat at chick-fil-a or popeye's chicken today like what's your what's your will lord what's the best chicken sandwich and, and again we know it's popeye's but um that was controversial <laughs> but um what, what is your will lord what is your will we, we seek like some mystical thing that's out there but the bible doesn't actually talk about god's will as some mystical thing that's out there or some map we have to like divine and bring clarity to it's, it's, it's not like some individual point out there that we have to find that exact thing and stay on this little path that has kept you to seek out what his will is. In fact, the Bible's really clear about what God's path is and what his will is. It's really clear. It's not some point, but instead God's will is like parameters to follow. It's, it's more like bumpers on a bowling alley of stay within these lines or coloring lines on one of my kids' coloring pages of, of follow God's will and stay within these parameters. And many, many times the Bible says, this is the will of the Lord. This is the will of the Lord. Just read it. And a few examples of that. One of them, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, this is good and it pleases God our Savior. So what is his will? Who wants everyone to be saved and to come to knowledge of truth. So the first will of God, the foundational one, is he wants us to know him, to come into salvation with him, to experience his life. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He came so that we could have life in him. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus. So what's that fuzzy thing out there? It's not fuzzy at all. Gratitude. God's will is for us to be thankful. Have we seen that so many times by Paul already in this letter? And in so many other letters, the life of a Christian must be marked by gratitude and thankfulness. That's the will of the Lord for your life. God, what is your will? What am I supposed to do? How about be grateful? Speak to him in thankfulness and to others. That's the will of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Lord, what's your will? God, where am I supposed to go? How about deal with your immorality? That's God's will. That's the parameter. Deal with the sexual immorality in your life. What we've been talking about the last few weeks in this passage. Address immorality. Address addictions to pornography and sex and all this other stuff. What is God's will? Where am I supposed to go? Oh, Lord, I want to stay in your will. Don't... Don't worry, obey him, and he will show you those things. Don't worry about the big stuff. Instead, he's saying, walk in purity, walk in righteousness. That is his will, and that's far more important than, oh my goodness, what's going to happen with your will of where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed to choose? Obey him in the things that he's put made clear before us. First Peter chapter 2 says, for it is God's will, what? That by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So what is God's will? Do good. Do good works. We've talked a lot about this in this book already. Obey God. Do his will by serving the poor, helping the heart, those who are hurting, helping those who need help by, by, by being generous with our finances towards those who are, who are struggling, doing whatever we can in, in that regard. Do good. We just got incredible feedback from some people we just helped out recently as a church and we give gift cards for them. They, they wrote, they were told that people were just crying when we were able to bless them and, and pour into them. Do good. It impacts people's lives. It draws people to him. But we are called to be people who do good works. That's the will of God. 
What, what, what good work should I do? I don't open your eyes. <laughs> like just obey God, open your eyes, do good work, serve the people around you, serve your neighbors, do whatever it is, do good works. It's not some great mystery. It's really clear in scripture of doing the will of God. In fact, it's the very heart of Jesus. I love it when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well uh, in John chapter four to the Samaritan woman, he's speaking about the bread of life. And here's the passage in four and it says, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. They assumed he'd gone all day. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And, and they're confused when they say, could someone have brought him food? They, they don't understand. And Jesus says this, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' sustenance, he says, is by simply obeying God, by hearing from him, by his life is built upon obeying God's will, loving those he comes in contact with, speaking his words, walking in holiness. And we are to walk like Jesus, to live in love like Jesus. That means we seek to do his will. We stay within those parameters he's given us. We seek his heart and his, his will. And we know that he will give those things that we need and he will show us the direction as it comes. Amen? We don't have to fight to know his will. It's right here. Just obey it. Become more like Jesus. That's his will. Love others the way he's loved us. Love him and become more like him as we love one another. Then Paul gets to the heart of this section. He says this in verse 18. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living or debauchery in some translations, but be filled by the Spirit. So now he's going to hit the main central idea of this letter, or of this section of this letter, that they must be filled with the Spirit. But notice, as we've been talking about recently, he put, does this put off and put on thing like he does so often in this letter. He doesn't just say be filled, but he says don't get drunk. Put off drunkenness. And instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, alcohol was a massive problem in the times of, of, the, of the Ephesians. In Ephesus, there was known as the, the god of, of, of Bacchus, or Dionysus, was the god of wine that, that would just ruled in so many ways, and they celebrated with these massive drunken festivals, and people would get insanely out of their mind drunk regularly as a practice, a very convenient way to worship their Lord. Um, and so Paul is saying drunkenness leads to reckless living. It leads to debauchery. It leads to being uncontrolled or no restraint. And, and one of the little definitions of that is to live without parameters, to lack wisdom, to lack the Lord's will with no parameters, with, with no wisdom. And, you know, it's fascinating because if you just Google alcohol and its effects on the brain, there's a bunch of major studies that were done. And when you look at those, they, they show that, that from brain scans that have looked at the effect of alcohol on the brain, the first place that alcohol affects is what's called the prefrontal cortex. And many of you may know that the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that regulates impulse control, right? It's the part of the brain that tells you that if I do this, then this thing is going to happen. It, con it regulates consequences. And so the immediate impact, even of just one drink, it says, begins happening before you're drunk, before you're buzzed, is it begins to dull the prefrontal cortex, which is your ability to understand consequences and, and recognize those in the middle of it. So, and it's not fully developed, the prefrontal cortex, by the age of 25, so it's even more significant in those under 25, and it develops slower in men than in women, so men under the age of 25 are most prone to the effects of alcohol, but even above it as well. And this is really clear, it says, it also doesn't develop in young children very quickly, which is why you see young children doing really stupid things, right, of, of jumping off furniture without any consideration. I remember a, a few years ago, we were in South Africa where we lived, and we bought this big play structure with this huge metal slide that was slick. And our four-year-old Hudson at the time just got his new, like, two-wheel um, balance bike, 
right, that he could barely ride on flat ground or go on the things. And we were looking outside, and all of a sudden we see him carrying this two-wheel balance bike up, the, up the, the slide. He's pulling it up. He's at the top, getting ready to ride. He can't even ride on flat ground. He's getting ready to zoom down this metal slide from way up going down. I mean, this is, that's what an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex looks like, right? That is someone who has not considered the consequences of his behavior. And I'm wondering when it's going to develop. I would really like to see it develop in his life now he's getting older. But um, that, that's what that looks like. But that it also, when you could say, wow, is he drunk? Well, no, he just has an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex. And no surprise, that's kind of what it looks like when people get drunk, isn't it? They make the same kind of stupid decisions. And so that's why alcohol is so often at the center of, of sexual assault and violence and, and abuse and adultery. Bad decisions just get compounded, even after a bit of alcohol, because of the effect on the prefrontal cortex. You know, I've walked with so many people who have seen destroyed marriages and destroyed lives and children's lives who are destroyed by alcohol. Many of you I've talked to are in this room right now where your life or a loved one's life has been destroyed because of alcohol and of people who thought they had it under control. There's so many who have been abused sexually because of the influence of alcohol on people's lives. I mean, it is so destructive, and that's why Paul says drunkenness leads to debauchery or reckless living. It leads to the opposite, removes the parameters. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that drinking is wrong. In fact, it says just the opposite in many places. Jesus enjoyed wine, and he actually expects his people to drink wine. As we're going we'll to take a communion later today. I mean, he expected people to drink wine regularly. And there's many places that Scripture even speaks positively about alcohol speaks about the fact that it brings cheer and it's a good thing to celebrate and it's a, a wonderful thing, though only with good stuff, I think, right? So like maybe I actually hate wine and I don't like beer, but I'll be honest, maybe I should never say this, but I, I love a decent, high, good quality whiskey, right? Those are, I think, redeemed by the Lord. Um, and uh, not the cheap stuff, the good stuff. And keeps you drinking small amounts because you're cheap, or at least I am. And, but we... The scripture speaks positively, in fact, about alcohol, but against drunkenness, it makes things really clear. There's so many warnings against drunkenness. There's a terrible warning, especially for those who brag about getting drunk. Isaiah says this, that, he, that those who, who brag about a high tolerance are in really bad position. Isaiah 5.22 says, What sorrow or woe for those who are heroes at drinking wine and boast over all the alcohol they can hold. I've heard so many Christians over the years just boast of how much they can drink. And I'm like, do you not realize that is not something to be proud of? Whether you have it or not doesn't make you evil to have it because you might have lived a life where that was part of your life. But that's not something to boast of, to be proud of what we can drink and how much we can engage in. Paul knows that the Ephesians were not just getting drunk with healthy amounts for the sake of cheer. But they, were, they, were gen- they weren't drinking for that, but they were getting drunk. And today, it's more than likely that some of us wrestle with this as well, and especially to room the size. You know, in years past, Christians would say, you know, Christians can never drink. We can't dance or drink or hang out with those who do or whatever it is. And now we just call those people legalists, right? Say, oh, they're legalists. In fact, now if you, if you tell someone that you don't drink, someone says, oh, you're probably one of those legalists. We've gone so far to the other spectrum sometimes, we say that we are free in Christ, and therefore we get to, and we must do it, and it's become a right of ours, and we don't want to be a legalist, but now we're going to enjoy this, and increasingly wine and alcohol are coping mechanisms for Christians. It sneaks up on you. I mean, initially it just starts as a drink every once in a while, and then weekly, and then afternoons or evenings just to take the edge off or fall asleep, and there's a pretty good chance that many of us wrestle with this where it's become more than every once in a while something we do to enjoy with friends, but it's no longer about celebrating or cheer, but it becomes a depressant to numb pain and numb nerves and help us fall asleep. And it's a really dangerous pattern, Paul says. 
A dear friend of mine who's a pastor told me that just recently he actually had to stop drinking all alcohol because he recognized it used to be a monthly just for a nightcap or something for fun with friends, and it moved to weekly, and then it moved to nightly, and he realized, I'm not becoming dependent upon this. And this, I can't do this. I'm leading a church. Paul is saying, don't be a fool. Walk in wisdom. And if you're drinking regularly to excess, take it to the Lord and ask him, is this okay? Is this pleasing to you? Take his word seriously here. I don't want to be too serious, and I'm trying to, to rebuke anyone, but let's just, this is what the text says, and Paul is saying, this is serious. This will prevent us from walking in the Spirit. He literally is saying, time is too precious to waste being a fool. Don't be unwise, but walk in wisdom. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 opens up by saying, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, whoever goes astray because of them is not wise. Can't put it more clear than that. Paul's calling us to walk in wisdom. And we can't do that if we're turning to alcohol to numb the pain or to get through the day or whatever it may be. Amen? All right. So, instead of getting drunk, Paul says, they're to be filled with the Spirit. He says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. So what is, the, what is Paul talking about here? Is he, is he saying, again, do crazy stuff? Go out and, is he saying, go out and speak in tongues or exercise demons or, or heal the sick or raise the dead? And, and while we can talk about there's a place for all those things and it's wonderful things that the Bible talks about, that there are many passages that speak about such things, but that's actually not the context of what he's talking about here. You can't read verse 18 and come up with your own definition of what it means. You don't even get to combine it with 1 Corinthians and say, well, there's the gifts of the Spirit and, and here's what it means because Paul is actually going to describe exactly what he's talking about. So we don't get to just combine and, and, and match verses together to make it say what we want it to say. In fact, his description is going to look a lot more like Exodus 31 passage we looked at earlier. So what does Paul mean by being filled with the Spirit? Again, I want to say it's a complex topic and we're going to talk much more about this in the future is, and I'm sure you know a lot about, about being filled with the Spirit. But here in the context to the Ephesians, here's what Paul says. Be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So when Paul says be filled, first of all, one thing to note, it's not a one-time thing. The, the, the Greek there is in the present tense, meaning it's continue. So a better translation would be continually being filled. Continue to be filled. It's an ongoing thing. Now, we already read back in chapter 1, and we should know as Christians, that we have been, when in chapter 1, Paul said that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit when you believed. So this isn't about salvation. This isn't the Spirit that comes at salvation. We already have that. Clearly, this is something that happens after salvation, and it happens again and again and again and again. We also know that we can't fill ourselves with the Spirit. So then, what does this mean? It must be a work of God, but something we must pursue. But it's a command. It's not something we have a choice. He commands them to do this. And he's going to give four specific ways to do this. Now, it's not as clear in the English, but in the Greek language, the original text, these are the original command to be filled with the Spirit is followed by these participles, meaning they are directly related. It's very clear in the Greek, and this is an important point, that each of these following four things come directly from this idea saying, be filled with the Spirit. And so what are the four things that he, you don't get to define it yourself, he defines it. What are these four things he describes? It's not an exhaustive list, but here's what he's using in context. Be filled with the Spirit with one. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the first thing. Two, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Three, 
giving thanks. Four, submitting to one another in Christ. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, and if someone came up and you asked you, what does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how many of you would give that list? Maybe not anything on that list. That's not what we often think about when we think about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So, Paul says we're supposed to be singing to one another's result. Does that mean we're all supposed to live in some musical, like Schmigadoon, or, or a high school musical, or something like that, right? Um, must we speak in songs to one another at all times and just sing our thoughts? You know, when every time I come home, every time I open the door, I open, I say, Sarah, how was your day? Is that what you all do, right? We just, we sing to one another. Is that what he's saying? No, right? That's, that's, maybe that's what you guys do. I'm guessing Brian actually does that is the truth, right? Brian probably literally does that regularly. Um, I'm sure it's never annoying ever. Um, <laughs> um, so what is Paul getting at then if that's not what he's saying? So he starts by saying, speak in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So now first, this book of Psalms was the hymn book of the early church. When they wanted to sing, that's where they got their songs from was the book of Psalms. And they quoted it constantly in scripture. They memorized it and sang it regularly. And they, they, it says, speak to one another in psalms. That means to build one another up in the truth of scripture. Does that make sense? By a psalm, they're singing out literally scripture and building up one another with scripture. They learned God's word at that time primarily by singing scripture. They would create rhythms and other cadences for memorizing scripture. And he says, so speak to one another out of the truth of God's word and know the word and keep it in your heart. They would also recite hymns of truth about Christ that the people wrote at that time. In fact, in this letter, there's multiple times, just the letter of Ephesians, where Paul uses a hymn of some kind. We just looked at one two weeks ago where he said, uh, what was it? Uh, Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and let Christ's light shine upon you. That was a hymn that someone wrote around that time that Paul was quoting. So we are supposed to speak to one another in hymns and sing out hymns, which is just things that people at that time were writing about truths of who God is. You know, it's funny to me, sometimes in, in, in worship in, in the church, you hear people say, I mean, can't we sing more of the good old hymns? You know, those hymns, this modern worship stuff is so me, 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 me. It's so, it's, so, it's so strange. I just want to sing the good old hymns. We don't realize the hymns that we're referring to, whatever that is, from the 1500s, 1600s, at the time, they would have been scandalous because they would have said, let's sing the good old hymns from the New Testament. I mean, hymns is just meaning things that people wrote at the time of their own language that were speaking truths of Christ. So modern worship is simply modern hymns. Paul says we must speak out and sing to God and to one another. Now, there's secular writings, even going back to the first century and second century, that speak of the church doing this, not by Christians, but writings outside of that. In fact, in the year 112, the Roman governor Pliny, definitely not a Christian, was writing to the emperor Trajan, who also was not a Christian, and he explained to the emperor that the Christ, this is just a secular writing found, that Christians were gathering regularly in the mornings and they were reciting hymns that had a call and a response to it about Jesus being God. Right? That is just something he was, for some reason, writing to the emperor, explaining what these Christians were doing. And it was their regular practice was to sing and recite hymns that had a call and a response to it. At the end of the second century, Tertullian, one of the great Christian writers of the time, was spoke about how Christians would gather in the mornings and they would sing songs from their heart that they would know of singing out scripture together. So the earliest references we have to the early church. So they were doing these things. And they were not just to speak to each other, but they were to sing to the Lord. 
It doesn't say they have to have good voices, although the Bible says make a joyful noise, right? You don't have to be in tune. You just got to sing. You got to sing out, speak out truth to the Lord of who he is. But our hearts, it's, it's more than just at church. Our hearts must be postured towards praising God throughout our day, centering in on who he is and what he's done because he is the one we are singing for. It's not for us, but it's for him. And along the same lines there, he says, give thanks. This is what it means. This is a, an outlook. It's how we're filled, but it's also how we fill. He says that we should be giving thanks and have hearts of gratitude, even through the hard times. And the Holy Spirit will empower us to do this. And then as we do it, we will be filled by the Holy Spirit. Again, this beautiful cycle that happens, he describes. And also, it isn't just singing and speaking. He finishes by saying we must be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, we're going to spend a lot more time talking about that in two weeks after Easter. And where he speaks about they must be filled with the Spirit by submitting to one another in Christ. And he goes on and tells wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. And it's sometimes a controversial passage for stupid reasons, because we get so hyper-focused. But it's so incredible, and we're going to talk about marriage and the beauty of mutual submission, of what this passage actually says into marriage and wives. If you've ever been wounded by someone saying, wives, submit, or whatever it is, please come and check that out, or invite others who have been hurt by that, because it's so beautiful what he actually says when we get away from the dumb, the dumb ways in which we've often taken it as a church to hurt one another. Okay, so here's what Paul is saying. This is what wisdom looks like. This is how we are filled with the Spirit. To live lives not as fools, but to live Spirit-filled lives. Lives that are postured towards God, towards one another. And one of the primary outlets of this, he says, is worship. I mean, isn't that cool? Worship is one of the primary outlets of this. That we are to be people deeply rooted in God's Word. And his truth should be like a spring pouring out of our hearts towards others and towards God. And that means we must be in his Word well, there's no exceptions to this. We must speak out his truths in song and praise and build one another up and encourage one another. And we can't get away from the fact that God loves musical worship. God loves it. In fact, he basks in it. It's a big part of why it's part of our Sunday morning worship times. It's, it's not just supposed to be a Sunday thing, though. Where, God, in, where in worship, we speak out God's truths to God, to one another, and he says to ourselves, to remind ourselves of the truths of who God is and what he's done. You know, the entire history of the church, worship has been one of the primary ways that people learn truths about God. Through times of worship, singing out God's truth is one of the most impactful ways. In fact, it said that Christian theology is shaped far more by the songs we sing in worship than by any sermon that's ever preached or even any personal Bible study because those are the songs that keep going through our heads again and again and again. They get into our heart and our mind and our soul and God knows that and it's why he calls us to do it. And not only songs that speak of his holiness. You know, there's often people who say, you know, I hate all these modern worship songs that are so me, 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 me. It's all I, 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 I. They say, instead, we got to sing only songs that get to give glory to God out there because that's what true worship is. And I just said, have you ever read the Psalms? I mean, go read the Psalms. Half of the Psalms is David saying, I, 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 I. How could you do this? God, please help me. It's, that was the church worship book. So let's not add to scripture by thinking it's more holy just the way that we have preferences. And if you are someone who doesn't care for musical worship, if you would rather intentionally skip the sermon or skip the message and, or uh, the worship in order to come to the sermon, I don't know how else to tell you this, but you're wrong. Um, worship and song is central to the life of a Christian, according to Paul. It's central. It's also why we must gather regularly together, unless there are health reasons that prevent it. Let's just be honest. You can get a great sermon online a whole lot better than what I'm able to give, probably. But you can't gather together as a body online 
and worship God together and encourage and build one another up. You can't do that. I love, yes, watching on Amen. Thank you, you're here. And I understand why many people can only do that, but make the effort to come and worship together as a body whenever possible. To experience what this, this means of building one another up and being filled with the Spirit together. Now also notice what kinds of worship is described here in this passage in Psalms. Or this passage in Ephesians, he says psalms, so the direct reading and singing of scripture, he refers to hymns, so that songs that were written about by people about God, we've talked about that one, but the last one, notice, spiritual songs, depending on your translation, literally songs of the Holy Spirit. Just FYI, there's nowhere in the New Testament is the word spiritual actually in the Greek. There's no meaning of that at that time. That means weird things to us today, spiritual but not religious. Every time it says spiritual, it's actually saying of the Holy Spirit. So these are songs of the Holy Spirit which means that they were improvising on the moment, speaking out and singing out songs that they were kind of conjuring up in their heart of who God was. That's not just for crazy charismatics. It's for all the body of Christ to sing out and improvise and whatever songs are upon our heart or words about God that's there. I mean, isn't that awesome? There's a style of worship here described for everyone, the traditionalists, those that like modern worship, and even crazy charismatics that want to do weird stuff. Right? And I've never understood why there's like these worship wars in church. You know, in churches, the number one thing that people fight that causes more divisions than anything else, it's not the sermon, it's not the coffee, it's not the doctorate, it's not the sermon length. The number one thing that causes dissensions in church is worship styles. I mean, it's nuts. I don't know how you deal with it, Esther, but, but there's so much that goes on about people that fight over worship, of the style of worship. Some people think the worship is too slow or too fast or too loud. They don't like the worship background, or maybe they think that it repeats itself too much. Again, have you ever read the Psalms? Read Psalm 36. Literally says it over and over and over and over again, the same words. Or it doesn't repeat enough, people would say. It's too complex. It's too boring. It's too high. It's too modern. It's too old. It needs more scripture. It needs more cowbell. Um, maybe that one isn't really emphasized as much. But um, Paul covers the gamut here as far as talking about that all kinds of worship are described in this place. We must sing scripture, we must sing songs that people write, and we must be improvised, moved by the Spirit to speak out His truth. And whatever it is, we sing with our hearts. No matter the style, no matter your preferred choice, if we're singing for God, we shouldn't care what style it is, right? We're singing. He is the audience. We shouldn't care what the style is. Amen. I hear it from Esther. Yes. We must sing to the Lord. We must sing to one another. We must sing to ourselves the truth of what God is speaking as we sing. And we're going to get back to worship in a minute after we take communion. But we must sing to the Lord. And this isn't just something we do on Sundays. It's something that God has called us to do as a people in how we live our lives. And the way that we are called to lift up one another and build one another up with the truth of Scripture. To speak His truth over one another. To pray for one another. Encourage one another. To walk in wisdom and to walk in the Spirit. Amen? All right, so brief recap of how we can apply this. I hit on a few things. The first one was be careful to walk wisely. And in that, to not waste our time, and for application, just ask the Lord, am I walking wisely and using my time wisely these days? I mean, just ask your iPhone. Look at your little the, the display. It tells you how much time. It's the most like, shame-inducing feature on an iPhone is how much time you spend on each app. Just add, look at your phone and see where your time is going. Right? Am I wasting my days, or am I intentionally building into the kingdom of God? How many hours a day am I wasting on social media and gaming and all this other stuff? Not that we can never use it. Not that we can ever do those things, but where is my time going? How am I building up the kingdom? And next he said, maybe that's not the area. Maybe it's the area of drunkenness. Maybe this is an area that you struggle with. Likely of a room this size and those watching online that many of us do wrestle with this one. Is drinking to excess something that we're compelled to do? And if you struggle with this, an application from today, maybe the greatest application you can make of your life is to say, Lord, 
I'm going to take six months away from alcohol. And just see what happens. To take that away is a crutch. To take that away is a depressant. I mean, who wants a depressant in their life in this season when we're already so depressed? This Holy Spirit is a stimulant. He says, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit, a stimulant that instead of hiding reality and numbing us to it, instead brings us alive to the real reality of what God is doing, not what the news and the media tells us, but what God is doing alive as we engage with the Spirit. So let us say no if we're wrestling in that area and take a break from all alcohol if that's something you wrestle with. Amen? And also, may we intentionally focus on being filled with the Spirit. May we joyfully engage with God through His Word. As we move in, in, in song and in prayer and in worship, the centerpiece of this passage is to be filled with the Spirit. And again, He doesn't make it general. Its focus is on using Scripture to build one another up, which means we must be in the Word. We must be encouraging and building up the body and spending time with Jesus and if you want to encourage one another in song, go for it. Brian can teach you how. Um, you, you can show it. It's a beautiful way just to sing, sure. But this isn't just about singing. It's about engaging and being in, just immersed in the word of God and how we encourage and build one another up. Spirit-filled people, according to Paul, edify one another. They don't tear down. They encourage. Paul says they are constantly talking about what God is doing and what he's done. And they're pointing people back to Jesus and the beauty of what God has done. Is that what marks your life? as a spirit-filled believer. And the thing is, again, it's, re, it's, it's cyclical. As we do that, we are filled. Do you see the beautiful nature of that? As we, empowered by the Spirit, speak words of truth to one another, build one another, encourage one another, we are thereby filled with the Spirit and empowered to do it even greater. It's the miracle of this, the beauty of this, what God has called us as a community. If that is not what marks our life, they go to the Lord and say, God, I want more. And then step out. Don't just wait for some you know, giant parting of the waters. But just step out and say, okay, Lord, today I'm going to step out and encourage and build up my brothers and sisters. Amen? All right. We're going to take communion now as we finish this morning. And as we take communion, we, we have this privilege of being reminded of this reality of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And it's beautiful that I was doing this on, on um, Palm Sunday, just before moving towards the sacrifice of Christ, because obviously this is the, the central act of communion, is remembering his sacrifice for us. And Jesus tells us to remember this. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, Paul says. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we have the bread and the cup, whether you're here or you're at home. Jesus has called us to never forget what he has done. To always remember his sacrifice. And, and not just about remembering his life, but remembering that we are called to follow his example. It's not just about, wow, thank you, Jesus. But this is the life that he's calling us to follow. To be broken in the way he has. That worship song we sang that was so beautiful about that. That we are called to suffer, to be broken like he was. And to join him in our sacrificially loving one another. And so let us take the bread as we remember Christ and agree to live like him. And then we have the cup that represents Jesus' blood that's shed for us. And so we take this cup as remembrance that Jesus gave his life for us, that he died so we may have life. Let's take the cup. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we thank you that and you gave your life for us. You died so we can have life. And not just so our body wouldn't disintegrate quicker, or not just so we could live for all of eternity in some paradise in the sky, but so we could experience life in you here and now. Right here, Lord. We experience your resurrected life here and now. You came for us to experience your life, and you want to fill us with your spirit so that we could experience your life. Oh, Jesus. Paul gave a bunch of stuff of things that we're often doing that, that tear away from us and pull us away from that, Father. And as we enter into worship right now, we praise you, Lord. May you remind us again and draw us back again to the beauty of your spirit, of, of your life in you. May you tune our hearts back to you, Lord Jesus. May you help us to walk away from those things of pain and of wasting our life with the drunkenness or just selfishness and, and not being with you, to spend time with you. And right now, as we move towards singing and worship and raising our voices and lifting our hands, Father, Lord, may you fill us with your spirit. May we move on from this place just empowered by you to love others the way you've loved us, to engage in your heart, the very heart of communion, the very heart of the season your life laid down so that we have life and that now we can offer that to others. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we just thank you, Father. You are Lord of lords and King of kings, and we have the privilege of serving you and loving you and being known by you, Father. Jesus, help us to grow and, and be filled with your Spirit, of pursuing you and living lives of, with your wisdom, Lord, and your life empowering us, Lord Jesus. May we go from here, Lord, and build one another up, encourage one another. Even now, as we walk out of this place, Lord, inspire us, empower us, Lord Jesus, to truly build one another with words of life, of your truth over one another's lives. Thank you, Jesus, for this community. Thank you that we get to take part in life and community with you. In your name we pray. Amen.